Good morning, church. As you guys make your way back to your seats, we're going to go ahead and continue our worship through the study of the Word. Thank you guys for being here today. It's the last Sunday of the year slash decade. That's a little crazy. Someone this morning was talking about how 2020 feels like it should be in a sci-fi movie, and I agree. That's insane that we're already at 2020, and yet no hoverboards. That's kind of, kind of a ripoff, right? Like, it's 2020, and somehow we ended up with a lot of stuff. Hoverboards wasn't one of them. We got smartphones, but no, no hoverboards. Um, I'm glad you guys are here. You know, I, I, th- this week I had a friend who, who was telling me, jokingly, that the, the last Sunday of the year is Youth Pastor Sunday. Uh, because attendance is so low, the, the preacher doesn't want to preach, so he has the youth pastor do it. And I thought, well, that's great, but I don't have a youth pastor. So uh, here we are. Uh, no, seriously, though, I'm, I'm glad you guys are here. I know it's a busy weekend. It's the weekend after the holiday. It's the last weekend of the year. This is an easy, year, this is an easy weekend uh, to blow off, uh, or, or not even to blow off, but it's just an easy weekend to be busy and to be caught up in family stuff and travel. And the fact that you guys chose to be here with us in worship, uh, it really is just a gift. Um, as I was thinking and reflecting over how to close out our year together, uh, not bitterly, not wishing I had a youth pastor to preach for me, just g- genuinely excited. Um, I came back to this truth in my own testimony that I just thought, man, I just feel like this is a really good place to kind of land. I'm not, I'm not necessarily one to get weird or sentimental about like seasons of time or whatever, but it is like we're closing out a decade, right? And, and it's, I think it can be healthy to sit back and reflect and think about yourself and your situation and your family in 2009, versus today, right? And I, when I reflect on that, the, the goodness and faithfulness of God becomes so, so evident to me. When I think of um, the man that I was in 2009 and the grace that God has continued to show me uh, in the years leading up to right now, and it makes me excited for the future to think about the grace of our God that doesn't let go of us, that doesn't cease chasing after us. And so today, what I'd like to talk about is this concept of long-suffering. We worship a long-suffering God. Um, this is a phrase that is really important to my testimony. If you don't know what that phrase means, it's just a churchy way to say patient. <laughs> but, 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 but it really is. It's something I come back to a lot in my own story. We worship a long-suffering God. This is my experience of Christ. I grew up in the church. I grew up with godly parents who, who loved me really well and taught me the gospel from a young age. And yet, um, man, there's just a reality that I really, really ran from God in some really intense ways. When I think about my time, especially in high school and in the beginnings of college, um, I, I, I knew the truth. I had been really faithfully ministered to. God had chased after me through the means of grace of my parents and my family and my friends and my church. But I just, I just lived a life that was so two-faced and hypocritical, who was so obsessed with the flesh and with the pleasures of this world. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Well, I guess minus the drugs. But, but, but that, was, that was the pursuit of my soul at that season. And yet God continued to chase after me. 
And I think about getting into college and the group of people that God worked through of a couple faithful mentors and pastors and a group of guys who taught me what real biblical community was like and the, the continued faithful ministry of my parents. And God continued to chase after me. And I, and I found real saving faith in Christ and real repentance and real, real change of heart and real new life. And then I began to work out the calling that God had put on my life, and I, I met my wife, and I started ministering, and I started discipling others, and being obedient to the commission and call Christ had given me. And in all of it, God continued to chase after me. And that is still true to this day. Every time I look and reflect on a season of my life, on a time of my life, I can just see the faithfulness of God chase and to chase and to chase. I love that. So here's what I want to do today. I want to take a few minutes, kind of our, our last sermon together of the year, and I want to reflect on the overall message of the book of Hosea. And so we're going to do that by zoning in on the first three chapters and looking at a couple key passages. But it comes down to this, guys. The gospel invitation the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the thing we proclaim, the thing we come back to over and over and over, is this. Your God is faithful to love and pursue you. His invitation to life and repentance in him is always present. Regardless of how far you have run from him, how hard you were fighting against him, or how full of life and joy and spiritual health you are, regardless of where you are, the long-suffering nature of our God is that he does not cease to chase after you. So, we're going to be in Hosea, and we're going to talk about this from these, just a couple key passages. But before we get there, let me unpack something just kind of just kind of mentally for us, right? So if you were with us in our Advent series, we opened up the Advent series by talking about, uh, we spent some time in Genesis 3 and talked about the first prophecy of Christ. Do you remember this? In Genesis 3.15, after sin has entered the world, when God is literally still in the process of explaining the reality of sin in the broken and cursed world and explaining what life will be like after sin, in the midst of that, he's already beginning to prophesy the coming Messiah. And in Genesis 3.15, as he's cursing the serpent, he speaks of Jesus and his triumph on the cross and the ultimate defeat of Satan. It's this amazing picture that, that from the very beginning, there was never a point when God stopped reaching out to his people. From the very beginning, when we chose sin, and I think it's really important for us to come back to that, that the God of the universe created us perfect and created us in perfect intimacy with him. And the choice given to humanity is the dumbest, simplest choice ever given ever. You can have complete and total, perfect, eternal, fulfilling, joyful life that you were built for, or you can die. Which one would you rather have? And Adam and Eve were like, now when you say die, you mean like die, die? Because the apple looks pretty sick. And we know that's the story, right? God gave humanity, gave his creation the easiest choice, and yet we chose death. 
And we chose death over and over. And if you are gut level honest, the desire of your heart, even right now, is that you choose death over and over and over and over and over. This is the futility of the cursed and broken world we live in. We are bent towards sin. Our hearts, as Francis Schaeffer said, our hearts have become glorious ruins, incapable of accomplishing the purposes they were set out for. We are stuck and bent toward a desire for death and destruction. When our lover of our soul, our creator, our God, has life and joy forevermore for us. Oh, what a hopeless state we find ourselves in. But God promises that he will fix it. Going back, right, all the way to Genesis. Genesis 3, the sin has just entered the world. The curse has just happened. God is already promising, I will fix this. You can't do it, but I can, and I will. Satan will not have the last word on my creation. Sin will not have the final say on my design. I will fix this. And what we see is that this interaction with God and humanity God reaching out over and above the intensity of our sin and reinitiating relationship in spite of our choice of death. This is the message of the Old Testament in a lot of ways. God reaches out and reminds, I will fix what sin has broken. I love you more than you hate me, I promise. And we see that, that picture of God reaching out over and over throughout Scripture. We see it in the covenant he made with Noah. I will not destroy this creation. I will not give up, and I will not walk away from you. We see it with the covenant he made with Abraham. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I'll bless you to bless others. We see it in the covenant he makes at Sinai. We see it in the covenant he makes with David. We see it in the new covenant that he preaches to the prophets through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel and through Isaiah. We see it through the preaching of Jesus, through the ministry of the apostles, through Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. Even today, God has put his spirit in his children as a seal and a promise that he will return and he will finish what he has started. God always reinitiates relationships. I love that. He's the one that reaches out over and over and over. But here's the crazy thing. He doesn't have to do that. I, I, and, and stick with me on this, right? Like, God does not have to be the one to reinitiate relationship. We're culpable for our decisions. We choose sin and death. We choose separation from him. And look, I know like, oh, I'm picking at some scabs of someone's like theology of sovereignty and free will and those things. S set that aside because that, that's, that's distracting right now. It's God's universe. And he made the rules. We choose sin. We engage in it. 
We're, we're bent toward it. It flows in and out of our person. Would not God be perfectly within his rights to walk away? To say, forget you guys. I'll go make another universe. It'll be way better. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he reaches out. And he continues to reach out. Over and over and over and over. And so you end up in the Bible with this picture of people who continually choose sin and a God who simply will not give up on them. A God who keeps seeking, keeps reaching, keeps forgiving. It's kind of (laughs) crazy. If we're honest, this is going to sound brutal, and we'll get into this as we talk about this book, but the reality is, if you had a friend who's in a dating relationship, and the person they were dating in that relationship mirrored what we see in Scripture between God's creation and him, you would tell that person to dump them. If they continually chose other people and unfaithfulness and other things over them, and that, and that friend of yours kept reaching out and kept reinitiating a relationship, there would come a point where you would say, hey, you should stop dating this person. They don't care about you. They're pretty awful. They're not going to change. They keep doing the same things. You're the one keeping this relationship alive. You should stop. You should find someone who loves you better. And yet that's how we treat God. That's how he loves us. Which brings us to Hosea. This is the story of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet And in the life of this prophet, God uses a romantic relationship to create a physical analogy of his relationship to his creation. So I'm going to read these first couple verses for us, and then we'll talk a little bit about this book. So this is Hosea 1, starting in verse 1. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And this is the word of the Lord. Father, as we take a few minutes to talk about your word and your relationship to us and the way you engage us, God, I pray that you would give us clear eyes, sober, reflective eyes to think of ourselves and to think of you. Holy Spirit, I just, I'm just really confident that you have something to tell us this morning, something to tell me. I pray that in the midst of the busyness of the holidays and breaks and family and schedules and all the stuff going on, that you, in this moment, would give us souls that are slow enough and quiet enough that we can hear from you this morning. God, cut us to the quick. Give us sober eyes to see our sin. And God, give us clear, humble eyes to fall at your feet. Receive your love and your mercy. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. 
So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So what's the story here? Hosea is a book of prophecy, and books of prophecy are harder to read in general. It's a genre that doesn't really exist in our world anymore. Uh, there's a lot of these in the Bible. The majority of your Bible is prophecy. On a side note, if you were to take the major and minor prophets and just kind of hold them, that would be like two-thirds of your whole Bible. Uh, and yet, it's in general the section of Scripture we spend the least amount of time reflecting and engaging on, and it's because it's confusing. If you go and you read prophecies, uh, it's really flowery language, and half of it's written like poetry, and we don't really understand the analogies, and we don't really understand the genre. Prophecy is this weird mixture of divine warnings of wrath and wisdom literature, which is another genre we don't really have anymore, and a love letter, kind of all smashed together. But essentially what you have in biblical prophecy is this, the God of the universe speaking tenderly, and lovingly, and harshly to his people. It's the God of the universe bearing his soul to his people. And it essentially comes about because of this. The scripture is really structured around these series of covenants that God made with his people. This is what we talked about at the beginning, God reinitiating broken relationship through the form of covenants. He made these agreements with his people. I will do this, you will do this. And these covenants, especially the covenant at Sinai, the one that was made uh, when, when Moses was leading God's people in the book of Exodus, had a very specific series of consequences if the covenant was upheld or not upheld. And so as God's people move forward generation to generation, they forsake the covenant. They're really terrible at keeping it. And so God speaks through the prophets to call his people back to their relationship with him. You agreed to do this. You covenanted to relate to me. If you keep doing this, these things will happen to you. Please don't live this way. I love you. I care for you. I'm your God. I want to restore you. I want to do great things for you. Please do not bring this upon yourself. This is the thrust of the prophets. Now, Hosea opens a section of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. You have the long ones and the short ones, and Hosea is the first amongst the short ones. And we spent some time this summer digging through a couple of the Minor Prophets. We went through Malachi and, uh, uh, the hard one to say, Habakkuk and Jonah, right? I wish we'd had time to go through Hosea because it's a brilliant book. This should be really close to the top of your Bible reading list going into 2020. You should read this book. Uh, in its entirety because it's powerful. This book opens up the whole section that is the Minor Prophets, and it opens it up with this really intense analogy uh, between the way we relate romantically to each other and the way God's people relate to him. And so it happens when, when this, the story as we saw it is pretty simple, right? God begins speaking to this prophet Hosea, and he says, go and marry an unfaithful woman and have kids. Trust me, it'll make sense. And that's basically how the book opens. Now, we need to know a couple things about what's going on in the world when God begins ministering through Hosea. Essentially, it's this. Hosea is, is set historically in a pretty unique period in Israel's history. And I'm sorry if this is like just a little too nerdy for you guys, but, but, but I promise this stuff is beneficial. This is set in what's called the divided kingdom era 
of Israel's history. So after uh, King David, King David's son Solomon reigned, and after Solomon reigned, Israel was split by a terrible, awful civil war into two nations, the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. And pretty much from that point on, things got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. There were a couple instances in Israel and a few more instances of Judah of good and righteous kings who brought the people to revival and repentance. But as a general rule, from the minute the civil war happened, Israel was pretty much just terrible and and violating their covenant left and right. Now Israel, the northern kingdom, was significantly worse than the southern kingdom. And so Hosea's ministry happens at a very specific time in the divided kingdom. He ministers and it lists out the king, the kings in both the kingdoms during the time of his ministry. He ministered during a long series of kings for the southern kingdom, and he actually ministered during a time of revival in the southern kingdom. If you go back and read 1 Kings like 9 through 15, you'll kind of get into this realm of Israel's history. Uh, And for the most part, the southern kingdom is working really hard to bring themselves back in line with the covenant they made at Sinai. The northern kingdom um, is in basically the worst place it's ever been spiritually. Jeroboam II, the king over the northern kingdom, was a terrible pagan king who, who really initiated a lot of the Baal worship in the northern kingdom. He's also the second to last king in the northern kingdom. Uh, things go really badly after Jeroboam II's reign, which is the main thrust of Hosea's prophecies, saying, your time has come, Israel. Your sin is too great. You have violated the covenant. God is going to, for your own sake, allow you to be destroyed. And very shortly after this book was written, the Assyrian Empire comes in and ransacks Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and destroys the country, and it never exists ever again, and the ten tribes represented in the northern kingdom cease to exist as independent Jewish tribes. It's pretty brutal. The Assyrians weren't known for their diplomacy, right? You wouldn't have never guessed that that was the near future during Hosea's lifetime. Jeroboam was politically and financially and economically the most successful king in the entire reign of the northern kingdom. He actually restored that kingdom to its borders during the time of Solomon. He was incredibly successful in the military, economically, politically. Everyone loved him. The northern kingdom was experiencing an economic boom. They were experiencing comforts and luxuries that they had not experienced since the days of Solomon. So for Hosea to come along and say, hey, listen, Jeroboam, you are in sin and God's going to destroy Israel, pretty much everyone laughed because they're like, are you kidding me? This is the strongest this kingdom has been in generations. Really? We're going to be destroyed? But the thing is, and we all know this, right? God does not look at the outward signs of success. Israel was economically wealthy and successful They were living in comfort. They had all the trappings of modern success in their day, and yet spiritually, the people were dead. They had violated their covenant, and all the sins of wealth had become just rampant in this community. The poor and the marginalized were ignored. 
not just ignored, they were actively wronged. The justice system was, was fragmented. Widows and orphans would starve and die in the streets or be sold in slave markets. Israel was not functioning in any way in accordance with the covenant they made with God. They were a wretched people. And to them, Hosea begins to minister. And the beginning of his ministry is not with some great proclamation, although if you read to the rest of the book, basically after chapter three, the rest of the book are his oracles that he gave to the kings in the north and the kings in the south, just like the normal prophetic books you're used to reading. It's just kind of the beginning part that gives us this narrative piece. He speaks really bluntly into these things, but before Hosea is ever given a platform for oracles, he's given a task. And God says, go and marry this unfaithful woman and have kids with her and build a family. It's a weird command, right? Now I'm going to get into just a couple things here, by the way. Um, I don't want us to like get lost in the weeds of like Hebrew and nuance and words, but I want you to hear this. There, there, there's a lot, because of a couple specific phrases in the Hebrew, there's a lot of debate and writing in the academic community about some specific meanings in this text. And if you go and study this on your own, which you should, you'll see a couple different views of this. And I'm going to take the one that I think best represents the textual evidence. I'm not really going to tell you why, just because I don't want to distract us with it. But that is what we're going to do today. So, so here's the thing you need to hear. He's given this command, go and marry an unfaithful woman. Now, what's interesting in the text here is that when we read this and when we hear this talked about, usually it's basically said, hey, God told Hosea to go marry a prostitute. But that actually seems really unlikely, the way the, way the thing is worded in the original language. What actually seems much more likely is that at the time of their marriage, Gomer was just like any other young single ready to mingle just a sweet young lady. And they were probably in love and likely already betrothed. But what God tells Hosea is, the woman you are going to marry is going to be unfaithful and eventually will turn to prostitution. Go and marry her anyway. Now that's intense. That's an intense calling that God puts on Hosea. This woman you love, I'm just letting you know, Hosea, first thing, hey, guess what? You're a prophet. Hey, that's cool. I'm going to talk to you a lot. First thing I need you to know, that woman you're going to marry is going to be unfaithful, and she's going to become a prostitute. I need you to marry her anyway and have, have a family. And so Hosea does. And by the way, God says very bluntly, your marriage to Gomer will be analogous to my covenant with Israel. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Go back and read Exodus 23.3. Israel shows up to Sinai really excited about the covenant they're making. Yes, they say with one voice, we will do everything you've commanded. We love this covenant. You be our God, we'll be your people. This is great. It took about five minutes after that for Israel to walk away from the covenant they'd made with God. But man, they walked into the covenant process with a ton of joy and a ton of excitement. So God gives Hosea the exact same, basically, scenario. Look, look, she's going to show up on your wedding day, and she's going to be excited. 
and she's gonna be joyful, and it's gonna be a party, and you're both gonna be decked out, and she's gonna be stoked about this life you're building together. Just so you know, she will be unfaithful. And she will turn away from you to a life of prostitution. Marry her anyway. Because is that not what God did for Israel? When he set up the covenant at Sinai, knowing full well that they were but dust, and they could not keep the covenant they were making, and that they would be unfaithful, and they would turn to other gods, and they would literally take every scrap of life that he designed for them, and they would turn it over and do the opposite and spite him. And yet they would joyfully walk into the covenant. And yet God made the covenant anyway. And he made his presence to dwell amongst them. And he filled the tabernacle with his spirit and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what we're doing. We're in this. And he gives the same option to Hosea. Go. Marry her anyway. Be all in. Build a home together. Have kids. So they do. They go they get married, they have kids. If you read the rest of chapter one, it's really weird because each time they have a kid, God uses the birth of a child as another opportunity to give Hosea these analogies of his relationship. And so he makes him name his kids terrible things that, that are analogous to, to Israel's relationship to God. But there's another piece here, another nuance here that's interesting. The way the names are set up and phrased is perfectly set up to make it really uncertain who the actual father of each of the kids are set up that way on purpose in Hebrew. We miss it in the English, but as you hear of the children being birthed and them being named, the way the book is written is to make you go, Hosea doesn't even know if these are his kids because his wife is being that unfaithful. But he names them, and they live in his home, and they build a family together. God knew from the beginning Israel would be unfaithful, just like Hosea knew from the beginning that Gomer would be unfaithful. And yet he invites him to walk into a joyful, loving, sacrificial marriage with her. That's intense. That's brutal. From the minute they said, I do, he knew what was coming. She would leave him. And she would leave him with a tornado of mess and relational and emotional destruction and kids without a mom. And she did. As you read chapter two, all of a sudden the book transitions to this beautiful poetry where it intermixes Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea and her decision to leave him with Israel's unfaithfulness to God and her decision to leave him. And it intermingles the narrative back and forth so much that by the end of it, you don't actually know when it's talking about Gomer and when it's talking about Israel. And that's kind of the way it's written on purpose, right? And it talks about how, how this woman has decided to be unfaithful. And so she begins to take the blessings given to her by her spouse and, and attribute them to her lovers and say, oh, I've received these comforts and these blessings because of these lovers who've come to me. They are not from my spouse. He cannot provide for me. And so the spouse, in his jealousy for his wife's love, begins to remove the blessings and say, those do not come from your lovers. They come from me. And they cannot fill you and satisfy you 
you. And he begins to hem her in and she runs all the more seeking after her unfaithfulness and her lovers rather than her soul and the one she's covenanted her heart to. And in the end, she leaves and he is there. And you really are reading it going, wait, is this Gomer or Israel? Is this Hosea or God? And the answer is yes. But as you walk into chapter three, what you have is a single dad with three kids whose wife is not living with him and has not been living with him for a while. In fact, the situation has gotten worse. The, the way the text reads that she is no longer just unfaithful, but she has actually taken on uh, uh, the identity of a prostitute, and in some way, she has sold herself into sexual slavery. And the text picks up in chapter 3, we read this, starting in the first verse. And the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecith of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. I want to give us kind of a story here. I want to help us recreate this a little bit. God tells Hosea, go and find her and bring her back into your home. Restore the home which is telling us bluntly, they don't live together. This home is broken. And it's very broken. He comes and he has to pay a price and buy her. Not a bride price to initiate their marriage, not as though they're divorced, not, not some kind of gift to woo her back. Because to be totally blunt, the amount of money he gives would be insulting in either of those contexts. No, no, this is, this is slave market money. This is the man who is legally married to his wife going out to the slave market and paying the price to buy her away from her pimp. Now that's a little graphic and I'm sorry for that, but that is the text. <laughs> and by the way, it's worse than that. See, that's not even the full price that you would have to pay for a sex slave in Hosea's day. That's like half price. Because essentially what's happening here is this. Hosea is going to get his bride from the slave market because her pimp is done with her. He no longer sees value in her, and so he has put her up for sale. And he doesn't see enough value in her to even charge the normal price. He has used her up, sees her as worthless, and is trying to dump an unnecessary resource. It's brutal. 
It's dehumanizing. It's an evil thing. And yet, we know that this is what sin does to us. It promises us the goodness that only our Savior can give us. It promises us life and fulfillment that only come from our Creator. It promises us love and stability that only come from the lover of our soul. And when Satan has used us up to his pleasure, he disposes of us. This is what sin does to the human soul. It's brutal. It's unjust. It's evil. It's dehumanizing. But praise be to God. Praise be to God that we worship a Jesus who loves us with the kind of faithfulness and the kind of ferocity and the kind of long-suffering that comes to the slave market and pays a price for something that is already his. Pays the price to have what he already owns. That he might have it. And look at Hosea. He pays the price and says, come home. What are you doing? Come home. You must stay with me. And, And the phrase, there are many days, by the way, he basically is saying, listen, we're not doing this anymore. Come live with me. We are family. We are going to dwell together for the rest of our lives in love. He doesn't come to her with anger or bitterness or retribution. He comes to her in love and says, come home and love me like I love you and let us dwell together. Let's not do this anymore. You have seen what this sin, what this world has to offer you. It is not worth it. Come home. Let's dwell together many days in love. And they will. They will live together the rest of their days in love, not in retribution and in broken relationship and in bitterness and in separation, but in unity. Hosea does not hold her crimes, her unfaithfulness, her sin against her, but rather, rather, their home and their love and their family is restored. Come on. Beloved, this is the God we worship. This is the love of our Jesus. The unfathomable, long-suffering love that endures years of our unfaithfulness that watches us chase after the things of this world and give ourselves over to the desires of the flesh and buy into the lies of sin and Satan himself and seek to find the pleasures of God from the depths of hell. He watches us do that. And his love never wavers. And his passion for you never wavers. His commitment to you never wavers. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the gospel we proclaim. That Christ is truly sufficient. 
truly sufficient to call you and me from death to life. Come on. I want to show you guys a picture of a dude. This guy's name is Francis Thompson. He lived in the second half of the 19th century in London. And I've talked about him before, I think. He's a poet, one of my favorite poets. Uh, and his story is crazy. He, uh, he went to medical school because his parents pressured him to, but he hated it because uh, he wanted to go be a poet and an artist. And so he moved to London and began writing poetry and very quickly became um, a hopeless, burnt-out opium addict and destroyed his life and was living homeless on the streets, stealing things and doing odd jobs to try and get drug money. And in the midst of that, uh, a Christian couple who owned a small Christian publishing house that mainly published gospel tracts found him in the streets one day and brought him into their house and helped him detox and helped him get clean and led him to the person and love and sufficiency of Jesus. And he received salvation and he lived the rest of his very short life kind of in and out of their care. He was very ill because of his years on the streets and given over to opium. Uh, and he died um, very young, um, I think like three or four years after they first found him. But in those last few years of his life, he wrote multiple collections of poetry and essays on life and faith. Uh, his most uh, famous work is my favorite poem of all time. It's called The Hound of Heaven. Um, you should look it up and read it. It's, it's, you know, whatever, it's public domain. You should read it. Um, it's very long, but it's worth the read. It's how he tells his own testimony. He gives this image of himself running away from God and running from thing to thing to thing, running from pleasure to pleasure, running from uh, sin to sin, and constantly trying to get away from God and to the things of his flesh. And in, as he paints this image, he uh, presents God as a hound dog. Uh, he, he associates God with Mabel. You guys know my dog Mabel? I got a picture of my dog Mabel. Mabel is a terrible dog, if you've ever met her. You should come to my house and meet her. She's pretty awful. Uh, but she's a little hound dog. She's, she's what they call a bagel hound, right? She's like halfway between a basset hound and a beagle. She's got like the basset hound body, but then this tiny little beagle head on her huge basset hound body. It's amazing. <laughs> he associates God with a hound dog, which I don't know if you guys ever had hound dogs. They're not the kind of majestic beasts that you would associate with divinity. They're floppy and smelly and stinky, and they're just not very majestic creatures. But there's something amazing about hound dogs. Uh, and, I, and I've seen this in Mabel, by the way. She's too old to do it now, but when she was younger. There's something amazing about hound dogs. Hound dogs have these real long, floppy ears, right? And they've got these big, huge, long noses. They have super, super sensitive snouts. Basset hounds have a sense of smell that's like 10,000 times more sensitive than a human's sense of smell. There have been uh, police bloodhounds that have tracked convicts over three states over the course of multiple weeks, right? They have incredibly sensitive noses. But here's what's crazy. They have these long, floppy ears. And when they lean down to catch a scent, they stick their nose into the ground, their ears flop forward, and create blinders. And the way their ears flop forward actually cover their ears in such a way they can't really hear anymore. 
So if you ever see a hound dog and he gets on a scent and you start yelling at it, like, get, get back here, get back here, they just ignore you because they can't hear you. Their ears have flopped forward. It's, it's what hunters call they've locked in. They've locked in on the scent. When their ears flop forward, it creates blinders and they can't hear the world around them. They can't hear any commands and they can't see anything except what's right in front of them and what's right in front of them is the trail. It's why hound dogs are so good at tracking. Because when they lock in on a scent, that scent and that target is the only thing in the world that exists to that hound dog. She doesn't do it anymore because she's very old. (laughs) But when she was young, she'd get on a trail of a rabbit, especially a rabbit, and she was just gone. Just gone. You could yell, you could chase, you could do whatever. Does not matter. The moment that hound dog locks in, that rabbit is the only thing in the world that exists. That's the kind of intensity with which hound dogs pursue their prey. If you've never been able to go hunting with a hound dog, you should do it. Look up a video of it. It's crazy. The way these things lock in on their purpose. Nothing else in creation exists except the target. This is the way Francis Thompson describes our God. When he locks onto your scent, when he locks into you, he's called you, made you, designed you, chosen you for life and salvation, there is nothing you can do to get away from him. As David said, right? I go down to the depths and you're there. I go up to the heights and you're there. I go into the darkness and you can see. I go into the light and you are the light. I can't get away from you. Can't get away from God. He's locked onto your scent. He'll chase you. He'll stay with you as long as it takes. As far as you roam, does not matter what muck or mire you trek through. He will trek through it after you. This is the love of our God. It's relentless. It's powerful. It's patient. And it suffers long on our behalf. Our God is faithful when we are faithless. He is consistent when we are hypocritical. And when he locks in, there is nothing that exists in all of creation that is powerful enough to get him off of your scent. Your God loves you. And he is calling you to life. He is calling you to freedom. He is calling you to redemption in him. You can run. And you can avoid it. And you can put it off. But why? Why? That's how he describes in the poem that he's terrified of this creature chasing him. And all he wants to do is get away. And he, the way he describes it is that he spends every ounce of energy he has trying to escape. And in the moment that he finally surrenders to the hound chasing after him, he sees it as his death. But in his death, he finds life. And he finds the love of his Savior who's been pursuing him all along. Beloved, this is the call of your God. As you step into the new year and you think about personal goals and, and what you want to see God do in your family or your job or your life or all those things, as you reflect on that stuff, let me give you one thought. 
Let's stop running from our sweet Jesus. Stop running from him. I know there are a lot of things that we love, a lot of things in our flesh that call out to us that we feel like we can't live without. Beloved, I promise you, there is no good gift that your God made for you that you can somehow find better and more satisfying through hell than through your God who made it for you. What if, and this is just my suggestion, part of our goal was to stop running from Christ and instead to run to him, to embrace his pursuit and embrace his affection and embrace his patient, long-suffering love on our behalf. What might that change in our hearts? What might that change in our families, in our careers, in our church, in our community? Beloved, that invitation exists. I'd love to invite you to take it. I'm going to pray for us, and the band's going to come up and sing a song. While they sing this song, I would encourage you to just create some space where you're sitting. Create some space to engage what it is that God's telling you today. And create some space to pray over what God's telling you today. Be alone with you and Jesus for a minute. Reflect on his passionate love for you. If you are in this space and you are running from God, man, I just want to urge you, surrender to him. He has life for you. He has such amazing gifts and freedom and redemption for you. I promise you, I promise you, whatever fulfillment you are finding now and the things you're running to, his life is better. Oh, his fulfillment is deeper. And it's for you. And man, I think for all of us, even those of us who found salvation in Christ, if we are honest, there are whole sections of our life that we want to keep from him. There are aspects of our heart and our life and our soul and our plans that we have dedicated unto ourselves. I would encourage you to open those parts of your heart. Open those hands to Christ. You can't hide nothing from a hound dog. They sniff it out. And be honest with him. Give the lover of your soul freedom to speak into your plans and your life. See what he does with it. Beloved, find some space to be with Jesus and do the work you need to do. And after we're done singing this song, we'll end our time out with some communion.